If you're able, would you remain standing and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. The prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 11. This is the word of our Lord. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come and with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that as we consider your word, that you would indeed comfort us. For we are your people. Speak to us, even as we consider the prophecy of your prophet Isaiah. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Comfort is important for all of us in life. As a matter of fact, just a couple weeks ago, Emily and I bought a, bought a, a new car to replace the one that had been totaled. And uh, at the top of our list of criteria wasn't necessarily mileage, wasn't necessarily looks, it was comfort. Now, as we get older, that becomes more and more important to us. And comfort is something we seek not only in the physical world, but also in the emotional and spiritual world. We, uh, we want our fears to be dispelled, our anxieties to be taken away and our pain and suffering removed. That's what we naturally want. We want uncertainties to be turned to assurances, and we ache for our country that is moving further and further from the Word of God. Where do we find such comfort? Where do we go to be comforted? How can all these things be addressed? Well, the only way, the only place, the only person in whom we will find the comfort that our souls are seeking is in God. 
but not just any God, in, the, in God as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, in the Bible. As we begin, it's important that we place Isaiah 40 in its context, because there is, if you ever read through Isaiah, you've noticed there is a great change that happens right at chapter 39. 39 is a hinge that, uh, uh, in which Isaiah, the prophecy, Changes in, in chapter 39, we have this major change in emphasis. Although there were some sporadic rays of sunshine in chapters 1 through 38, most of it is filled with doom and gloom. It's one of those, the first half of Isaiah, you do have the, uh, the sporadic uh, holy, holy, holy in chapter 6, or the uh, unto us a son is born in chapter 9, or a uh, shootout of the, the branch of Jesse in chapter 11, and so on, but, or the, uh, the peace of God comes upon those whose minds stay on thee in chapter 26. But overall, that first half of Isaiah is a type of... Um, reading that when we get through it in our yearly Bible reading, we go, oof, I'm glad I survived through that. Chapter after chapter, we read of judgment against a nation, this nation and that nation, and against the people of God. Just so that you have a feel, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 13. And if your Bible has headings over the chapter, look at the headings starting in chapter 13. Chapter 13 in my Bible is proclamation against Babylon. And you keep on going. And, and in chapter 14, there's a little bit of mercy, but Babylon is destroyed. And then you come to chapter 15, is a proclamation against Moab. And Moab is destroyed in chapter 16. In 17, the proclamation against Syria and Israel. And then 18 is a proclamation against Ethiopia. And then a proclamation against Egypt. Again, and then Ethiopia and Egypt are destroyed. And then Babylon falls. And then... Tyre falls, and then the whole earth falls in chapter 24. And then if that wasn't enough, then Israel falls following that. And then uh, God knows what he's doing. He knows that the, now at that point people need a little breath of fresh air. Chapters 25 and 26 are glorious songs of deliverance in the hand of the Lord. But the prevailing feeling of chapters 1 through 38 is this of doom and gloom, of judgment upon all peoples, judgment even upon the people of God because of their rebellion against God. But then you get to chapter 40, and from 40 through 66, we have a message of victory. We have a message of deliverance. We have a message of peace to the people of God to such a point that uh, one... uh, well-known Isaiah scholar by the name of Alan McRae called this the gospel of Isaiah. You have all the elements that you find in New Testament in Isaiah 40 through 66. And the contrast is so great between chapters 40 through 66 and 1 through 38 that several scholars have said that the same person could not have written both of them. And they would say, a guy came, probably like me, doom and gloom, and wrote 1 through 38. Then a guy like my wife, the more positive, wrote uh, 40 through 66. And the third guy that they call a redactor came and wrote chapter 39 just as a seam 
between the two sections. That's not a necessary explanation because if you let Isaiah speak for himself, you see that it makes sense that there is this major shift here in chapter 39. Isaiah 39 concludes the judgment portion of the book of of Isaiah with a prophecy of the Babylonian captivity. Look at verses 5 through 7 of Isaiah 39. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You know, you know what Hezekiah had done, right? Hezekiah had brought the Babylonian delegation into the palace, and he thought the best thing for him to do is to show all the treasures of Israel to them. Hey, let me bring you to Fort Knox so you can see all the gold that we have. We know, I know that you are an invading nation. I know that you're conquering the whole world. I know that you've been mercilessly taking everybody's wealth. But I think I can show you all the weapons I have, which weren't March, and then all the gold that I have. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, what are you doing? These are the very people that are going to take you captive. And in these verses that we just read, then um, Isaiah prophesies, Quite a bit of time ahead of time, the uh, Babylonian captivity, almost 100 years before the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah prophesies that this is going to happen. I always find Hezekiah's, this is just a side note, Hezekiah's reaction to what Isaiah said interesting. Look at verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. So, oh great, this is not going to happen during my lifetime. So a few. That's great. And he didn't even worry about what was going on here. The Babylonian captivity was the ultimate chastisement in the Old Testament for rebellion, for the rebellion of God's people against God. There's two epoch-making events in the Old Testament. There's two events that the Old Testament referred to as the two major events. When the Old Testament is speaking about redemption, it always talks about the Exodus. And when the Old Testament is talking about chastisement, punishment, it always talks about the Babylonian captivity. And that major event is about to happen and that's what, how 39 ends. When we come to chapter 40, Isaiah moves us about 200 years in the future. Not to the Babylonian captivity anymore, but to the end of it. When the people of God are about to be liberated, they will be able to go back to Palestine if they choose to do so. And yet, Isaiah wants to make sure that that's not their ultimate comfort. Their ultimate comfort is not found in being restored to the land. It's not found to be restored as a nation. It's not found even in a political and physical freedom. The ultimate consolation, the ultimate comfort is found in God. This is our plan for this morning. The plan is to look through the whole chapter. But as I look at the clock, I see that that plan has already been shot. We're not going to be able to do that. 
But for the next couple of Sundays then, this is our plan. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 40, where this good news of comfort is announced. The comfort itself is not announced in verses 1 through 11. We're told that there is a comfort coming, and that's going to be told us later in the chapter. In verses 12 through 26, now the God who is going to comfort us is pronounced. Great attributes of God are told us. This is the God that's going to comfort you, people of God. Uh, Look at verses 12 to 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of wisdom, of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon's not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering." All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing worthless. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith spreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot, He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent dwelling. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stub. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them by all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. This is the God who is going to bring the comfort of verse 27 to 31. This is the God that inspired Isaiah to bring a message to the people saying, Comfort, yes, comfort my people. This is the God that has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And the chapter continues. And in verses 27 to 31, finally, the comfort is disclosed. So in 1 through 11, there's an announcement. There's a comfort coming. In verses 22 through uh, 12 through 26, there's a description of the God that's going to comfort you. And then in verse 27 through the end, we have the gracious gift of the comfort itself. And how that comfort is to impact and encourage our troubled hearts. Look at verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The comfort is God has not forgotten you. And even though you may think he is far from you, he is the one in whom you're going to find strength. So let's, let's at least take an attempt at verses 1 through 11 today. And then we'll come back. Uh, in future times for the rest of the chapter. We need to know God if we want to navigate the strange times that we live in. We're living in confusing times, and in order to know God and to know Isaiah 40, we need to really understand how he reveals himself. And these first 11 verses speak a word of comfort, and that word of comfort is full of the glory of God. Do you notice how Isaiah cannot go three verses without referring to the glory, the gloriousness of God? And that's a, something that you see all the way through chapter 66. Isaiah 40 to 66 has a big, huge God that he places before the people, and that's the only way that that God can comfort us for being, by being that big. And, and good God. Look at uh, the prophet's commission from God in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The goal of the prophet's preaching is to speak a word of comfort to the people of God. He is to assure them of God's love and to silence their fears as he proclaims the word to them. And he is to do that with a certain attitude, in a certain manner. He is to preach to them with a particular attitude of the heart. He is to speak tenderly to them from his heart to their heart. If you look at verse 2, if you have a New King James, you have uh, the word comfort there in verse 2. And I think the ESV has the word sincerely in there. I can't remember exactly if that's the case. Tenderly in verse 2. That's, a, that's an interpretation of the word here in the original language. The word in the original language is actually to, to the heart of. In verse 2, literally says, Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Isaiah is to speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Now, how many of us forget this note of tenderness when speaking to each other and trying to help each other with our problems? Now, we may be full of love and concern for the welfare of brothers and sisters, but when we open our mouths, we speak a word, to speak a word to them, it is a stern word, it is a harsh word, it is a cold word, or it is an impractical word. And yet, speak to the heart of Jerusalem is the message of comfort that God has given to Isaiah. Speak to the heart. 
speak to the heart of Jerusalem should be at the top of every sermon manuscript that the pastor takes as he climbs upon the pulpit. Speak to the hearts of Jerusalem should be on the Bible cover of every believer as he ministers, as she ministers to one another in the church of Jesus Christ. And these two verses also don't tell us about the manner in which you're supposed to, do, to deliver the message, but also about the message of the prophet. If you look in verse 2, it says, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Their warfare is, has ended, their iniquity is pardoned, she has received doubled for her sins since God through Isaiah moves from consequences, the war, the afflictions that they have come up upon them backwards to their causes and how God has addressed not only the consequence, but the causes that stand behind those consequences. He says war. And here I think is war against God because uh, I, uh, Israel is involved in all kinds of war after this point. So I'm, I don't think this is that God has promised a cessation of physical warfare, but the war they were fighting against God, the war of rebellion has ended because sin is forgiven, because she has received double for her sins. And we read that, and it sounds to be unfair and just in the part of God for, for, to, for Israel to receive, for the people of God to receive double for her sins. But the Hebrew word rendered in our English versions, double, really means something corresponding to something else, something that mirrors something else, uh, like a double in a movie. Have you ever heard that expression? Someone's double? Uh, I think the current word for that is someone, someone's doppelganger. That's, that's the word that's used these days. The, these, the, the kids, the youths use that uh, uh, word these days. But the idea here is double is not twice as much but the equivalent of, the mirror image for their sins. It doesn't mean that God has punished his people twice over. That would be unjust of him. It does mean that Judah has received the exact match of her sin and guilt. That is to say, the Lord has provided atonement that corresponds precisely to her need. The blessing, the comfort is, is that the sin of God's people has been dealt with precisely in the way that you need to be dealt with. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins have been atoned. Now this word atonement. Is not a word that we use every day. It was literally invented by John Wycliffe. When he was translating the Bible into English. Because there was no English word to represent it. And think about the word. And can you find other English words inside of the word atonement? Because that's exactly what Wycliffe did. He just mashed together at one. And then he had meant at the word. Is God has and man has been brought at one. They have been reconciled. They've been brought together. And that has been done through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a comfort that Isaiah is to pronounce upon the people. Our message of comfort is that God's great mercy is always suitable to our need. His grace fits your sin. It corresponds to it perfectly. You can never come to God with sin so severe, so filthy, so aggravated and complicated by constant repetitions and entanglements in such a way that you force Him to throw up His hand and say, well, I don't know how to deal with that sin. God is never going to say, I don't know what to do in this case. This is beyond me. 
My grace just wasn't designed for that. That's never going to happen because God has provided the double. God has matched your sin with his mercy in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Be comforted, people of God, because you can go to him and pour out shame and guilt, all your sin, your rebellion, your heart need, uh, you, the heart's desire, confess, ask him to pardon, and he will do that. His mercy is tailored precisely to the need of your soul, and that's the only comfort that will truly comfort you. Matt Papa has a, a, a song that goes like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Terrible English, great theology. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Be comforted, people of God. Your sins have been covered. By the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is that, that precisely that, that you need. Our message of comfort and is to be spoken tenderly and it's filled with the glory of hope that God has provided full, exact, and precise atonement for sinners like you, like me. We are comforted by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you notice that there are three voices that explain the good news of comfort even further. In verses 3 through 11, three voices come into place. And these voices are answering several questions. How is it that atonement has been made? How is that the God and men have been brought together? How come Judah, so guilty in sin in the, in this, in the sight of God, is delivered when she deserves judgment? How can God really rescue me, pardon me, save me? That's the questions. Those are the questions that the voice, these three voices are going to answer. Voice one in verses three through five is the herald of the Lord. These are very familiar words. Look at verse three through five. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway from our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked place shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What major work of English literature has made this verse super familiar? Handel's Messiah. In the ancient world, there was a custom when the king was going to come to visit your city that a highway of some sort would be built between the capital city and the city where you built. And that would be built without any impediment so that the, the king could move swiftly and directly without any impediment. And that's the image that we have here. A straight highway through the desert is to be built for the coming of our Lord. Valleys are to be raised up. Mountains are to be flattened. The rough places made smooth. Uneven ground made level. Because God himself is coming and is going to visit his people and he will come swiftly to his people without any obstacles. Nothing can stop him from coming to his people. And we know whose voice it is, don't we? Who, who, who had the voice that cried in the desert? John the Baptist. And we know that for sure because Matthew 3, verse 3, quotes Isaiah 40, 
3 through 5, and says explicitly that these words are fulfilled in the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. He is the forerunner who prepared the way of the Lord in the wilderness, which means that the God who is coming in Isaiah 40, in whom the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, by whom comfort comes to the hearts of sinners, who is the grace of God matched precisely to our need, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Church of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 40, is about your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one that brings this sort of comfort that is described in this passage. And then we come to voice number two in verses six through eight. This voice is not identified, but it's directed to the prophet. It's directed to Isaiah. In verses six through eight, we read, The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The voice reminds Isaiah of the fragility of life, how life is fragile. We think we are invincible, that nothing can stop us, that we are going to live forever. The older you get, the less you think that way. But that's a tendency that we have. This whole uh, pandemic thing showed how we as a society think that somehow we can live forever. If we do all these things, if we actually stop living as a community, we're going to live forever. It shows the desire of the heart as if we're going to live forever. But reality is that life really hangs by a thin thread. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had that, has that classic description of the sinner being uh, held upon the fires of hell by a thin, I think he refers to a spider web, over dangling over the fires of hell. Life is as fragile as that. We don't know what's next. We don't know if we're going to make through the end of the day. We don't know what's going to happen to us. Life is like grass that seems to be green and strong today, but turns brown after just a couple of days of sunshine. It is into this fragile and changing life that the Lord brings comfort. The comfort that is brought to us, that offers pardon and atonement for sin, that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, is ours through the word of the Lord that endures forever, as as Isaiah is told in verses 6 through 8. God doesn't change His mind. He does not renegotiate the terms of His offer to us in Jesus Christ. His word is sure and his offer dependable. You can take him at his word. His word is not subject as we are to the changes of life. You can trust his promises of mercy completely. And that's the comfort that we receive from our Lord. And then we have the third voice in verses 9 through 11. And the voice describes the ministry of Zion, the church of the living God. Look at verse 9 and through 11. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift up the voice, lift up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold our God, behold the Lord 
God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in the, his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It, it is the task of Zion to proclaim the word of God to the people of God. It is a task of the people of God. That's who Zion is, the people of God, the city of our God, is our task. It is your task, it is my task to proclaim the word of God. And what are we to say? What's our message? Verse 9 says, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. We are to say, behold, we are, God. we are to point people to live in God himself. And this is not to people outside, because it's Zion saying to Judah, these are all the people of God. That has to mark the way that we relate to one another. We turn to the other and be, point each other to the God of the Bible. Our relationships must cause us to see Christ better. As Paul says, whatever we say must be seasoned with grace. That those who hear us are closer to Christ for having heard us. Are you saying that to the people in your life? Behold your God. Is your life, is the way you relate to them, it is your message, behold your God. Or are you turning the people in your life away from God? God says your comfort is in Him. There's no other comfort in life or in death than to know that Jesus Christ has died for you. But I want us to see something else here. The church need people telling her, behold your God. That's the lifeline for the church. Hearing of their God. Being pointed to their God to see His face in the face of Christ. I'm turning 48 in August. To some of you, that's like your baby, right? To all of you, and I say, man, you're old. My question is this. I'm not going to last forever. I don't know what the Lord has for me. I don't know if I... I don't know what the Lord has for me. Who is going to take my place? Who of you men are going to hear the word of God when he says, who, who shall go for me? And who of you will answer with Isaiah... Here am I. Send me. Who is going to speak the word of God to his church? Are you going to be the one that God uses to, tell, to be the minister of his word in this church saying, Behold your God. Who is going to be the next, the, who is going to fill the, the pulpits in the Bible Presbyterian church as a whole? We need you. God doesn't need you. But the church of Jesus Christ needs men such as yourself, who are willing to respond to the call of the gospel, to be the Isaiahs of this age, saying to the church, Behold your God. The church is in sad state today. This last year has revealed that the church has relegated itself to the margins. We need men who are willing to give of themselves to say, Behold your God. Who will make his life go? to know and proclaim the word of God. Ideally, our next pastor is already in this sanctuary. Someone who can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in this church, who knows this church inside out. Is that you? 
Is God calling you? Are, are you willing to do the hard work to get yourself to the place in which you can stand before the people of God and say, Behold your God. No one is beyond that call. God spoke through a donkey. He can speak through you as well. He speaks through me at times. He can speak, definitely speak through you. And notice the three beholds in verses 9 and 10. Behold your God in verse 9. Behold the Lord God in verse 10. And then behold his reward in verse 10 again. It is as if Isaiah is grabbing the people of God by their ears and pointing them to where they wanted them to see. Look here. Behold, here is God. I don't know. Growing up, Saturdays, I always, in the morning, I went out to my dad. Uh, my dad would go to the hospital in the morning. I would stay at the radiology department as, as young as I can remember with my godfather. Uh, it was like the coldest room in the whole hospital. It was always so cold. And it would be looking at uh, different films from different patients till my dad was done for these rounds. And then we'd go downtown, like to the center of city, um, city center, uh, to do my mom's honeydew list. My, my mom always has things that my dad would need to do downtown. And he would carry me, not carry me, he would guide me, and he would grab me by the back of my neck, and make me go anywhere. Now, he wanted uh, uh, me to go. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if I never did that to my kids or not, but I might have instinctively done that. Uh, but that, that, as I grew older, that annoyed me quite a bit. You know, I'm just trying to move <laughs> it, uh, it away. But in essence, that's what Isaiah is doing. He's grabbing us and said, Behold! Behold! Behold your God! Look at here! He's here! He's here to reveal Himself to you through His Word. So... Where we will find comfort, lasting, stable, secure comfort? Behold, Isaiah says, in your God. Not ultimately in the results of the ballot box. Sadly, the church of Jesus Christ reacted to the last election as if the end of the world had come. Is Christ still reigning? Excuse me. Sorry, Isaiah can, can see a lot of spit on that one. Uh, <laughs> Is Christ still reigning? Did he lose the election? Was Trump the second coming of Christ? No. He has much better for us. He is still our God. Our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in material prosperity. It's not in personal vitality. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says, Behold your God. We must fill our gaze with God. And Isaiah is here back speaking in verses 10 and 11. And he says that God is, is a just judge and a ruler and a tender shepherd all at the same time. See that in verses 10 through 11, which is actually an introduction to the next part that we're going to Lord willing see next week. So people of God, behold your God. The mighty arm that rules and judge is the same mighty arm that carries the lambs in his bosom. People of God, behold your God. He is a shepherd king who leaves the 99 and goes after the lost one. That's you. That's me. People of God, behold your God. Here is your God, the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name. And they follow him. And he lays his life down for the sheep. Isaiah says, fix your eyes on this one. This great and glorious God who has now come. People of God, behold your God. In him atonement for sin has been made. In him God has matched his mercy. He has matched his mercy to you. Your need perfectly. 
people of God, behold your God. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your comfort. Thank you that your comfort is in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you, Father, that you did not leave us to our own sins, but in your great mercy, you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we behold him every moment of our lives, that we'll be consumed with his gaze, that we'll be filled with his face in the face of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us to do what you call us to do, Father, for asking in Jesus' name, amen.